What I say is the way that we're going to all heal, all make sure we're going to put things and we're going to move forward, we have to come back together. Mm -hmm. But those people need to acknowledge what they did and the damage that they did. And then we have to talk and, 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 and really change the culture. This is Copper and Heat, a podcast exploring the unspoken rules and traditions of the kitchen. I'm Katie Osuna. You're listening to our first season, Be a Girl, all about women in fine dining kitchens. This episode is going to be a little different, like the last episode. You heard from Chef Kinch, my boss for Man Racer Restaurant in Los Gatos. Having a conversation with him, one of my personal role models and mentors, was a dream come true. His perspective is really valuable as a business owner and a chef who's worked his way up through the old school restaurant environments. But as Chef Kinch and I discuss as well, he of course has gone through his experience as a male cook and chef. So I wanted a companion piece to that story from the perspective of a woman. And as luck would have it, the day we released the podcast back in July, the opportunity arose. Thank you so much for that very warm welcome. Um, I am editor of Live Journalism for the New York Times, and it's my true pleasure to be with all of you here tonight in beautiful San Francisco for this timely discussion about the state of the American restaurant. So tonight we're thrilled to bring to stage three chefs of enormous culinary talent and intellectual curiosity. All three of these chefs are active in elevating new voices in the kitchen and beyond. The New York Times hosted an event called View from the Kitchen, with the Yerba Buena Center for the Arts on July 17th, the day we released Copper and Heat. Chef Dominique posted something on Instagram about a panel event she would be a part of, and I'd been trying to get an interview with a prominent woman chef when I saw this event posting. Four women in the food industry, three chefs and one journalist, talking about the issues we've been exploring over the course of this season. It was perfect. So I reached out to the New York Times events team and they agreed to let me sit in the sound booth and record. Dominique Crenn, who trained right here in San Francisco, is a multiple award winner whose restaurant Atelier Crenn boasts two Michelin stars. She was the first female chef in the United States to accomplish this. Tanya Holland, the chef and owner of a brown sugar kitchen in Oakland, is a pioneer of the New Soul culinary movement, whose work in kitchens across America over the decades has earned her a generation worth of praise, as have her contributions to a plethora of service organizations. Rima Sill, a former community organizer, is the owner of the nationally acclaimed Reams California, an Arab bakery that grew out of the farmer's markets here and has recently opened Diafa in collaboration with Chef Daniel Patterson. Here to interview them is someone who knows quite a bit about our special guests and their work, our national food correspondent, herself a four times James Beard Foundation Award winner for food writing, and a member of our team that won a Pulitzer Prize this year for coverage of sexual harassment issues in the workplace. So if please now join me in giving a warm welcome to my esteemed colleague and moderator, Kim Severson, 
and our special guests, Rima Sel, Dominique Kren, and Tanya Holland. The event lasted about an hour and a half, so my partner Ricardo and I edited it down to fit into your commute. But if you have some time, I would recommend listening to the whole thing. They cover some really fascinating topics. Since it is a live event, the sound is a little funky at times, but bear with it. The content is worth it. You comfortable, sisters? Everybody's good? Yeah. Okay. So we're going to have a long talk. It's going to be good. <laughs> so let's first talk a little bit about what it's like to be a businesswoman, because uh, really that's um, at the heart. The restaurants are food and beauty and love, and uh, you know we'll talk a lot about that. But I'm very curious about... Um, doing business, uh, doing the restaurant business, and doing restaurant business as women, and particularly in the Bay Area. I know, like Reem, you're in sort of the early stages of a, a career that's just taking off like crazy. You're having... Reem Siel started her business as part of La Casina, a restaurant incubator program dedicated to helping women of color start food businesses. Um, well, well, one, I was able to get into a very esteemed incubator program called La Casina. Are there La Casina people here? Great. Um, so really with their help, I mean, I think that it, um, it's, it's a learning lesson um, being a woman of color in a predominantly um, white male dominated industry, how to stake my legitimacy, right? I didn't go to, I went to a baking pastry program at Laney College. I didn't go to culinary school. I wasn't um, sort of classically trained in that sense of the word, but I've been cooking all my life. And right. that was my legitimacy, the stories of the food right. that I grew up with. And um, and so through La Cocina, being able to have a spotlight or a place um, at the table, so to speak, or an audience to be able to share this food that I love um, and the stories behind that food um, felt very fortunate to me. And so we started... Her idea? To start a bakery selling a traditional food from her so childhood. Our, our trademark product at uh, Reams, California is a flatbread called the Manushe. Um, I knew that if I could introduce this to Americans, they would fall in love with it. And so I remember the day that I knew it was like four years before I was going to open my business. I told my mom, like, I am going to turn people on to Zatar. Zatar, which is the craze now, but years before, she was like, I don't know if the Americans are ready for that. And it took off. She started by selling at farmer's markets around the Bay Area. They grew from one market to five in a year, quickly getting too big to stay at La Casina. She entered a Build Your Dream Kitchen contest with Open Table and beat out the competition to finally build her first brick and mortar, Reams, California, in early 2017. She just recently opened her second spot, Diafa, a fine dining limb of Reams. I would say if Reams is the heartbeat, Diafa is an artery. Right. And I hope that, that I build many arteries off yeah. of this business. But the heartbeat is the bread, which is the lifeline of my people, the lifeline of my business, the lifeline of what makes me whole and what feeds my community, um, Oakland yeah. and beyond. Yeah. So. Um, Tanya, let's talk about you for a minute, because you've had kind of a real interesting... You know, you're at this, at this very solid mid-career place, but after many, many years and many, many different paths that you took... Um, Tanya Holland has done all sorts of jobs in the food industry. Front of house, back of house, food writer and cookbook author. She opened her nationally acclaimed Brown Sugar Kitchen in 2008, and it became a staple of the Oakland food scene, with the mayor declaring June 5th Tanya Holland Day for her role in making Oakland a center of culinary excellence. Though she closed the original location a few months ago, two new locations are opening soon, one in Oakland and one in the San Francisco Ferry Building. 
but it's been a long road to where she is now. You know, I went to cooking school to become a restaurateur. I was really about the business. The people who inspired me were Danny Meyer, Judy Perrant, uh, Maggie Lacoze, you know, all these like amazing front of the house people who knew food and knew how to hire good chefs. And I just, you know, because I wanted to pay my dues and then I was coming up in the time like under Bobby Flay and of that celebrity chef and that also seemed like a way to get your business started. Um, but I stayed in the kitchen a little bit longer than I really anticipated. Um, it's complicated. Oh. <laughs> but it's interesting, you said in, a, in an interview that you struggled to attract investors even if you had, even if you had a lease in the ferry building, right? So Yeah, no, what, for years I've been working on trying to have my own business. Um, you know, I had some, I've, like you said, I've had a long career and I just thought that owning my own business would come a lot sooner. So when I was in my uh, early to mid thirties, I was still back East and I was in New York trying to make uh, a place happen. Then I went to Boston and I was working with someone who was more business focused and thought we could make it happen and we just could not get investors. And um, so I came out here thinking I wouldn't even work in the restaurant business anymore. I was, yeah. right, wrote my first cookbook, was doing some teaching, and then um, someone I met at um, a nonprofit that I supported said, hey, if you want to do your own restaurant, I'll invest in you. So I thought, well, that's all it takes, you know, a little inspiration. And, and why do you funny. think that is? Is it, is it gender? Is it race? Is it just uh, the reality of the expense of doing business in San Francisco, which it just seems It's like probably so all the above. I mean, I can't separate gender and race. Like, I never know, like, which yeah. way I'm being judged. It's like something I've dealt with my right. entire life. Ultimately, I know I don't fit into a box and yeah. people don't quite know what to do with me. So, and they project <laughs> what they think yeah. I might be. Um, but, you know, I, once I got a male partner, um, I did get funding. You know, it's, it's been very frustrating to have it. Have, but, you know, everything yeah. happens for a reason. I'm also that kind of person. Like, you know, maybe I wasn't ready. Had to get through some other yeah. life lessons. And right. Now, Dominique, did, you didn't, it seems this, that you just sprung fully formed one day. <laughs> I, like, I, I don't, yeah. And that may well have been true, but... Um, <laughs> Uh, I think that way about all French people, though. I'm like, how did you just appear? But uh, 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 how does your show, I mean... uh, Dominique Crenn never went to culinary school, but received an international business degree before working her way up in kitchens. She worked in restaurants all over the world, as well as for the Intercontinental Hotel Group, before starting her own restaurant in 2011. In 2009, I had a stupid accident where I almost lost my life, too, and how... Um, I, I was opening uh, this um, uh, hotel down in uh, 5th Street, the Intercontinental Hotel, and um, I was working, I don't know, 100 hours a, a week, and I was just exhausted, and one day I just came home and took a shower and just felt in the shower, sliced my tendon in half, and Ooh. blood was everywhere, and I don't oh. know what happened, and I just... Um, On a glass? On a well, it was just like uh, you know, like those those uh, soap holder, you know, like yeah. just oh, a soap holder, like, yeah, okay. it's crazy. And then wow, then I just like you I almost woke up. got killed by a soap holder. I know it's crazy, right? And I woke up and I'm like, what's going on here? And I just I couldn't like it was like differently sliced. My gosh! And wow. Pick up my phone and and um, which was right there next to the bathtub, and I didn't call 911. I called my pastry chef. <laughs> I swear to God, I, 
I called Juan Contreras, who has been does. with me for 12 years, and, and I, I don't know what I said to him. <laughs> then I suddenly was like, oh, maybe I should call 911, and I did, and they couldn't get into the building, and they had to go through um, wow. the window, and I had two dogs that was like just barking yeah. crazy, and, and then I realized, um, I realized at that moment that I was working for a big corporation, and uh, they, didn't, they didn't care about me. They didn't. They did suddenly when I got a star, but they didn't. You know, I just realized it was just like, it's so political. And it's like, wow, okay, I need to... Um, then I went back to what my dad taught me about life, people, humanity, and how you, you need to bring people together. So my idea was to bring, to open a restaurant, a space where I could welcome people as in, in kind of a workshop and work together and have ideas and, and be creative. And, and then I opened Atelier Crane. Wow. Her restaurant, uh, Atelier no Crane, received its third Michelin star this year in the 2019 guide. She also owns two other restaurants as part of the Crane restaurant group, Petit Crane and Bar Crane, which received its first Michelin star in the 2019 guide as well. It was difficult. First of all, 2010 was right. through the crisis. Um, I had people say, yeah, I give you this, I give you that, and, and I was just struggling. And uh, literally, I, uh, found the place, I found the place on, um, on Fillmore that at the time was owned by the Getty, it was mm -hmm. Plum Jack. Mm -hmm. I had absolutely Jack, right. no funding. And I went out there, I was like, this is who I am, I'm going to do this. And I had no money. And then at the last minute, um, uh, someone came to me, and which was not the right partnership, but I, I took it, and which was, it was a woman, and so it's not just men, I, we have to be careful. <laughs> and I think it was just, you know, it was a dream, so I did it, and I struggled for many years, and I finally bought that person out about a few years ago, and now I'm on my own, and it's just, wow. it's amazing. Wow. What I was trying to do is to cook food, and, 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 and to start a dialogue with people. And obviously, and what we did is I believed in myself, I, I continue my vision, and, and here you are. Look where I am today. So what, <laughs> As businesswomen and restaurateurs, each of these chefs have been outspoken in their ideas to change the restaurant industry. They each have their own story and perspective, but they all are making changes in their restaurants to address wider issues. One of those issues is the tipping system. You know, I'm working closely with Saru and uh, Restaurant Opportunity Center, and as are you, Reem, I think. And, you know, this tipping system is a leftover from feudal and slavery time. And I just, you know, we want to work on professionalizing our industry. I mean, there's definitely points in my career, especially starting off in the front of the house, as a tipped employee where you have to, you know, that is a real unique compromise yeah. sometimes yeah. to yeah. you know work on get getting tips and whatever um, or just see this kind of behavior being perpetuated and the leadership you know it always comes from the top yeah um, that relationship do you think if ta if because it is a, a, a you know anybody's waited tables know the more you kind of you can read a guy and you flirt with them a little bit a little that sexualized camaraderie and a kid like all of that can be fun but it is a, a bit of a prostitution. But I think for me, for most of us, the issue is not even about that flirty thing. It's just about the power struggle and the, okay. the power that they willed and that they've been using to, 
you know, it's operate. An entitlement. It's more like that. You yeah. know, the, I mean, Do there's always going to be flirtations and sexual right. innuendos and all that stuff. But if you're going to use that to hold somebody back from an opportunity, then that's, that's a problem. It's about power, not sex. Do yeah. you think if we eliminated tipping altogether, as many people have posited, that, that some of the sexual harassment, particularly in front of the house, would go? Would I do be believe reduced? some of it would, especially in some of these, you know, formulated restaurants in the middle of, you know, mm -hmm. not so much in the Bay Area, but in other parts of the world where people are encouraged to dress a certain way. Yeah. And the, the wages are much lower, and so right. they're really reliant on their tips, yeah. Um, yeah. for sure. Mm -hmm. It's not about the boys and berry syrup at the IHOP. It's about something else. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking from experience. Um, so, Dominique, what do you think? Would you eliminate tipping like that? Do you think that's a good idea? Do you think it included? I mean, you do so, that. So, um, everything is inclusive, is included in, mm -hmm. in, in, in at Petit Crane, Bar Crane, and... Um, um, actually crane, so it's all inclusive and then we pay people um, different wages. I truly believe that it needs to be more balanced from the front and the back of the house. Um, yeah, prostitution Good maybe, time. yeah. I'm just curious here, how many in the audience think that we should, as a, as a culture, as a nation, eliminate tipping? Here, a little over half the audience raises their hand. A surprise to me was about how evenly split it was. Wow, okay. And how many people like the tipping system? These are all the waiters I, who are raising <laughs> their hands, so. Okay, that's just so well, interesting to me. I mean, um, I think in what, Oakland, your... we have, I mean, like tip pooling is yeah. the way, so there's like, still feels like the customer has you know, right. that they're contributing something, but then they, they have the knowledge of knowing that they're actually supporting back the of house back of the house and front of house because everybody had a hand in making sure that you had that experience. Right, and So, right. you know, when I built Reams, I really built the business around that model of everybody is, mm -hmm. everybody is contributing in some way. But I, I decided that if I was going to build around that, that we really focus on the longevity of our workers, that, that we have less turnover, that people are really mm -hmm. committed um, to the to the vision of Reams as a, um, yeah. you know, as an enterprise, as a community right. enterprise. And do, let's just get back for a minute to um, just kind of the, sec the Me Too sexual harassment movement that we're in. What was your first thought? I mean, I, I you know, it, it, was a, it was a remarkable moment when, I mean, for me, I felt like I'd been sort of swimming in toxic water and suddenly I saw things very differently and I was able to kind of see this unfold and the reality of all the stories we've heard um, suddenly were, you know, women were telling me all kinds of stories and I'd heard them before, but in this new light and with editors who were interested in them, it, it was changing things. So uh, tell me your... Well, I mean, I know a few of those people personally. So you weren't surprised? Uh, no, not surprised because I also know of their behavior, but it was more just you know, what's crossing my mind was, you know, why do those guys keep getting empowered? Why do they keep getting financed? Why do they mm -hmm. keep getting all the opportunities that we are struggling for? Right. It's just kind of, it's just frustrating. Mm -hmm. You know, it's all about frustrating, you know. Right, okay. Thank you. Now, Reem, what about you? Are you, I mean, yeah, I mean how do you consider uh, people that we know who um, have been involved in sexual harassment situations and, is there a way for anybody to ever walk it back, or is it... Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I believe things, like, people have their contradictions, and if we are to kind of uh, look at things with nuance, we have to take a restorative justice approach to things. But I, I do also believe in accountability. There's a reference here to Chef Charlie Hollowell, a Bay Area restaurateur who was accused of several instances of sexual harassment. 
He recently released a statement with his 12-point plan to return to the industry, causing a whole lot of controversy. For the same reason, yeah. and I know they've, they're changing ownership and all that, but also initially when they, do, they didn't, and you know, even Mario stepping you know, away from operations, but yeah. money's still going yeah, into his pocket. Mm-hmm. And, but it seems like the general public still, like, you know, I drive by Charlie's restaurants, they're still full. Yeah, there's so still a couple really hour wait at the Spotted Pig, but now there are tourists who want to go take pictures of the rape room. So God love America, right? So yeah. there you go. Interesting. Now, let me ask you all, would you go eat at an April Bloomfield restaurant now? A little bit of info for people who don't know the story. There's a restaurant in New York called The Spotted Pig, previously co-owned by restaurateur Ken Friedman and chef April Bloomfield. Ken Friedman was at the center of the Me Too storm in the food world, seen as one of the worst perpetrators of harassment in the industry. The so-called Rape Room, a VIP room where Friedman held parties at The Spotted Pig, is the location where a whole lot of awful things went down, including many of the allegations against Mario Batali. April Bloomfield has since severed ties with Friedman, but her role in the whole thing has come into question a lot. There's some debate about how much she did know or didn't know. Um, I have seen seen some emails where she clearly knew, you know, she's been, you know, would you go to one of her restaurants now? Was she culpable in that situation? Are we blaming the victim? I'm I'm just curious. She's a very good friend of mine, and um, yeah. and I um, I talked to I, I talked to April, and she was she was very uh, troubled and disturbed, and and I mean I was very honest with her. I was like, mm-hmm. what you know, not showing up for your team. This is not a, what you're going to do about this. And I think she's been. Um, what I say is the way that we're going to all heal all make sure we're going to put things and we're going to move forward. We have to come back together. Mm-hmm. But those people need to acknowledge what they did and the damage that they did. And then we have to talk and, 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 and really change the culture. Mm-hmm. You know, if we continue of, of uh, pointing finger to those people, then there's a problem. Tanya, what do you think? Do you agree with this? Uh, would you go eat at April's restaurant? Would you eat at Ken's restaurant? Have you thrown away your Mario Batali cookbooks yet? <laughs> Very important. Well, yeah, yeah, the same. Yeah. You know, he endorsed my first cookbook, so. Yeah, what do you um, think about not that? Not throwing that away. Yeah. Uh, it's, such, it's so complicated. I mean, I think it has to start with diversity, inclusion, and equality. Yeah. On all levels, you know, I've been working on this for a long time and the leadership has to be led, you know, it's all about the intention of the ownership and it's all about getting more female leaders, female restaurant critics, female editors, female, you know, personalities on travel shows. Why is it all male driven? You know, all these like, all this messaging, you know, has to kind of change and be integrated mm-hmm. uh, in order for all of this to change. Do you have, do you talk to your staff about that? Do you have a system in place or do you just, it comes from the top down and you assume that nobody would be No, we, um, I mean, we, we have a very sort of clear structure of places where people can have grievances mm-hmm. um, to create that sort of open system. Um, that things get back to me as the business owner. Have you ever um, had a situation, a grievance um, around? Not at Reams. Okay. Although now getting into the fine dining world, uh-huh. um, it is quite interesting seeing the little things, like walking into a kitchen that I have less control over. It's a little bit bigger. Like Reams is a lot more well kept, and it's like a family, and I have real strong relationships with 
you know, sort of the second tier of folks. So I know if something is going down, how to weed out that, right, <laughs> weed that right. out you real quick. Coming. Um, but I think it's sort of now, like being at Diafa and, you know, just seeing the little things. Like, like um, give me an example. Uh, like interactions between workers, like, yeah. oh, I like, I, 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 I saw an interaction and then I'll ask the, you yeah. know, I'll ask, her like did that make you uncomfortable that touch like even me as executive chef yeah. be, you know being touched a certain way right um it's interesting i mean those things are so normalized and so you know we're really building a system where that is not normal right, right? and that we have right. conversations about it um and that is something i take very seriously do you um, have this in your kitchens yeah. do you how do you deal with it if there was a well i mean uh, I mean, I frankly, would never want to cross you, but that's me, so I don't, yeah. I get always yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, No, I mean, I, you know, I, I want to make sure that I want to create a place where people feel safe. So, um, obviously, that's what I'm, and this is, this is my philosophy, and, and, and I believe in that. I think we need to, uh, doesn't matter where you come from, the gender, you need to respect each other. That's the bottom line. And um, the kitchen needs, um, I mean, if you understand how the kitchen were built, you know, through the escoffier, you know, brigade years and years ago, it's like the military, it's like the military. you know, way of doing things and the men and just, we have to beat you up. It's like, it's crazy. It's, it's not good. It's not, it's not good. So, um, but I had people come through my kitchen that didn't get the memo and I had to tell mm -hmm. them what to do. Yeah. Oh, I fired them. And I, I mean, I did fire yeah, some and I people. Think that's the thing is like, can we have a zero tolerance policy? Oh yeah, there's zero tolerance to, uh, right. policy. There's right. like, I don't care if you, the best cook in the world, if you, it's not about, you know, how good you are. It's about how decent you are as a human being and how you respect mm -hmm. others. This is a rare, a rare quality in kitchens, although I think it's, changing now so you know we need to judge restaurants based on many things now right um you know it matters how they're treating their people and i think many of us just didn't even just sort of you know assumed i mean if somebody said this people in this kitchen are treated terribly you probably wouldn't go there but you know now it makes a difference in how where you choose to eat in addition so to taking stances on tipping and revamping hr practices Chef Reem, Chef Dominique, and Chef Tanya are all questioning some of the long-standing views that when a cook comes to work, personal life is left at the door. For me, for, for the company, you have to invest in people first. Yeah. When you invest in people and, you know, there's this saying you have to make, uh, you have to spend money before to make money. Mm -hmm. So I think when you invest in people and you get the right team, then you can start to build an incredible business. And from okay. that, then everything come yeah. together and obviously everybody people. has responsibility and all that and I think you have to know the people that are working with you. Yeah. If you don't know that then it doesn't matter how talented you are or things like that, your business is not going to be, I don't think your business is going to be successful. And it is hard because like we're not social workers, we're employers but we want to take care, mm -hmm. you know like these folks have other things going on in their lives that right. are making it so tumultuous for them to be able, there's no affordable housing, a lot of like, like I'm lucky that like half of my staff lives in the Fruitvale, but it's getting more and more expensive to live in Oakland. People are commuting long ways. I don't blame them, <laughs> you know, like right, it's right. really hard. So, so it's I housing, think it's, it's like all we need, It's yeah. all intertwined. We need to be partnering with government agencies, right. with, with folks who want to invest in communities. It's, yes. it's all yeah, connected. I mean, transportation, I tell yeah. people another reason, and I think, again, people don't think about all these elements, but my restaurant is a mile from both BART stations, so that limits the 
type of staff I can attract. Amazon's gonna start delivering employees soon that last mile for you, so I'll take them. I feel like what we need to do more, and in the Bay Area it's not as much, but really educate the consumer so they can understand why you need to pay more for the kind of food that we create because we're doing artisanal, you know, very thoughtful, um, mindful cuisine, and we're hiring well, and we're, you know, we're sourcing well, and you have to pay more for it so that we can um, provide, so we can, yeah, sustain our business and also provide a, a living wage for our people. You know, people, I just uh, reduce my hours to Friday, Saturday, Sunday, because the only three days that I'm making money, you know, I just, I had to make a business decision because I'm not, you know, it's not a nonprofit. A lot of people right. are sad and disappointed, but they have to understand, like, it's, I've been losing money for years, but people don't want to pay what, you know, uh, what I'm serving. They don't want to pay in West Oakland the prices that I should be charging for the work that goes yeah. into the food that I'm providing. You know, and I, and I believe there's enough of us out there who are doing a new way of business, mm -hmm. that there's this renaissance of you know, food businesses that are activists in their communities who are like doing a whole new way. And that's what we need to be investing in. Many chefs are lamenting the need to be political. Some say that the merit of the chef and the restaurant should be based purely upon the food and cooking. It goes along with that idea that you're supposed to leave your personal life at the door. But for these chefs, separating personal identity and food is impossible. And being a chef is inherently political. Now, uh, you, chefs also find themselves in this place of, of having to be political in a way that you never have. And, and, you know, food is politics in the Bay Area. We don't, you know, it's like, duh. But, um, it's like, you know, I need to explain that concept to you. Um, but it seems like it's a, it's a responsibility now when you're making food for people. And sometimes do you just not want to cook? Or is there a way to separate? I mean, for you, I know it's making Syrian food, making, you know, you're not, Middle Eastern is so kind of whitewashy, right? Right. You're like, I'm making Arab food. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I made a really intentional decision when I started Reams that I was like, I am going to popularize the word Arab. It's not a bad word, you know? Right, right. And we're living in an anti, you know, we're living in an era. Yeah, where it's, That is Islamophobic and anti-Arab, you know? And so absolutely. I wanted to reclaim that terminology and, right. and really normalize it and celebrate it. I mean, the Arab culture and cuisine is beautiful, it's nuanced, it's not just shawarma and falafel, y'all, <laughs> you know? But yeah, I, I was very intentional. I think like growing up Palestinian in particular, like food is inherently political for us. Yeah, right, it know? always has been. Um, I mean, we may not have a state, but we have our national dish, you know, and like right, food is right. a marker of our cultural identity. And if we lose that, and a lot, especially us in the diaspora who may never get to see our homeland again, like the food is the thing that connects us to who we are. Yeah. So. Um, you take that away from us, you take away our identity, and so you can't talk about one without the other. Sure. Tanya, how about you? You've been in fighting the fight for a long time, and at some point, you're kind of like, other people need to go do the work. I mean, or do you still feel every day like you've got to, you know, cook and, you know, lead and make sure that you are, because you have a platform and a voice, um, is that, I can't yep. imagine, it must be exhausting. <laughs> Still, every day, it's very exhausting. And, <laughs> and raise I, money. And yeah, I talk about it with, you know, some of my other colleagues, especially black women chefs and 
black women in business, we have to like educate every day, all day long. Like yeah. it's just sort of point, like people should just go do their own education, right? right? I mean, <laughs> it's, just, it's exhausting. Exactly. You know, I just I have to prove myself over and over again, no matter how many credentials I have, no matter mm -hmm. how many accomplishments, you know, if it's somebody who doesn't know me or someone right. who, uh, you know, meeting for a while. And it could even be, you know, someone, you know, who's coming on board as a, a young cook and I've got to, you know. Right. Yeah. Humble them. <laughs> be like, Take them to school. <laughs> yeah. Just really, yeah. just teach them humility, teach them, you know, something. It's, it's all the time. Yeah. Uh, but I'm curious, you're in a position of leadership in a way of, by virtue of the, the level at which you're operating, the amount of press you get. Um, you know, uh, there's, you, you know, you're powerful. Do you feel like you need to use that platform or do you just want to cook? Like sometimes is it Oh no, this, this is, this is, um, this, this, um, this is a responsibility. I have a platform and I was lucky enough to have a platform and I didn't get into this business to cook, just I got into this business to, like I said, to give a voice to people who don't have a voice. Mm -hmm. You know, food is politic, like you say. It's like it's food is the core of the society and, and you, you can learn about the society through food. Mm -hmm. If we take that away, then there is nothing, you know. I was, I was, uh, I was in New York um, at the World uh, Women's Summit a few, few months ago and, and we were talking, I was on stage with Barbara Lynch and, and uh, I was interviewed with... Uh, I think the, uh, the executive chef of the White House at the time. Mm -hmm. uh, Christina Crawford? Or, no, 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 or under uh, um, Obama. Uh, yes. And he just, you know, um, he, he was looking at me, he's like, well, you know, I think, you know, as men, we are a problem. It's like, no, you're not a problem. You are, you have an opportunity to change things. So I think we need, I think when we need to look at life, it's like we always have an, an opportunity to improve and to change, but we have, we are, we have to be willing to look at where we are and where we can go. Because I think if we become negative about things, then we're not going to go anywhere. Right. So now I think we have an opportunity to be better and to become, you know, better, especially what's going on in the industry with the Me Too movement and all that. Politically also, we have an opportunity to yeah. better because we are, you know, we are, we are the people and we have the power to change things, so. Sitting up in the sound booth, listening to this conversation, it just, resonated so much with me. Hearing not only one, but three chefs talking about their challenges and validating my own experience as a woman and a cook working in the industry. Because behind every chef that has gained some level of celebrity, there's a team of dozens, or in some cases even hundreds, that are held to the rigorous standards expected from being associated with a big name chef. There's so many of us doing as our heroes did before us, paying our dues. But as we've talked about in this season, maybe simply paying dues in the traditional sense isn't enough for some people to succeed in this system. A system built on generations-old rules that are upheld by cooks and never talked about. How do we go about changing that? In the next and last episode of the season, we'll explore just that. Since we're wrapping everything up in the next episode, we want to hear from all of you. Was there anything in the season that hit close to home? Something that made you think about the kitchen a little bit differently? What are your thoughts on how we change the culture in kitchens to be more inclusive? Record a voice memo on your phone and send it to hello at copperandheat.com. 
or call us at 208-718-2719. Be a Girl, the first season of Copper and Heat is produced by me, Katie Osuna, and Ricardo Osuna. A huge thank you to the New York Times subscriber events team for allowing us access to the sound booth for the View from the Kitchen panel discussion. Check out our website, copperandheat.com, for the full recording of the event, as well as some more articles about the chefs featured in this episode. Don't forget to subscribe to us on iTunes or Stitcher and leave us a review. It helps us a lot. Tell your friends, tell your mom, tell your cat. We could use all the help spreading the word. Head on over to Twitter or Instagram and find us at Copper and Heat. All the music you hear is produced by us under the name Gamma Gardens. Check out other tracks on Instagram and SoundCloud. And finally, thank you to all of you who are listening. Thank you.